Shane, what's up, bro? What's up, Joe? So I've got Shane Lantigua with me. And for most people listening, that doesn't mean anything. But for some people <laughs> listening, they'll, they'll, they'll know who you are. Uh, what's, uh, what's your story, man? What's a 10,000 foot view? Good question, man. Yeah, so uh, for those of you who don't actually know me, me and Joe went to the same high school. We're both from Memphis. So uh, I'll start there. I, uh, so I was born and raised. Um, I was born in North Carolina, ended up moving to Memphis when I was three. My dad was an airplane mechanic, ended up working at FedEx. Uh, and my mom was more of a stay-at-home mom, but then when we got here, she was a, a preschool teacher. So she's actually my preschool teacher and a couple other of my buddies that I grew up with. And so grew up playing baseball, did some karate too. A lot of people don't know that. Um, I uh, I was really good at karate. Actually, I was a black belt. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I played baseball predominantly for my whole life, played some other pickup sports and um, so grew up, lived in the same house ever since I was about four years old. And when I was nine years old, my dad passed away. And so my dad had smoked for a really long time. He developed lung cancer and that ended up spreading to the rest of his body. Um, and I want to say, obviously I was, I was nine, so I don't really recollect the timeline, but I want to say he died in about a year In about a year is when he died. He, he got diagnosed and then he died. And, uh, I think it was June 28th. Um, before I went into fourth grade. So, um, so he passed away and it left my mom really with a lot of struggles. I mean, single parent household, she wasn't even working at that time. So, uh, I had so many friends and family members or, or friends, family members that would drive me to baseball games, take me to out of, out of town tournaments. Cause my mom just, I mean, she couldn't afford it. And also she couldn't, um, she couldn't take me. She didn't have the time to cause of work. And so uh, I'm truly appreciative for all the friends that I grew up with that, that did those but did those things. Um, but my mom ended up going back to school. She got her associates at Southwest Tennessee Community College right down the road from us. And, uh, and I just I stayed at home a lot of nights by myself, stayed at home by myself a ton uh, when I wasn't at baseball. But looking back on it, um, I'm truly appreciative of the grind that my mom went through to be able to get that to get her job. And so she ended up getting a job. Um, things got a little bit better financially for us. Not much at all. Um, but she ended up putting me through college and, um, and high school. Um, I played baseball collegially up at Austin P uh, in Clarksville, Tennessee. Um, and I met a ton of my best friends there. I played for three years. Uh, I was a pitcher. And so um, while I was there, I didn't see a lot of success. Something just didn't click with me whenever I was pitching um, for our school. But during the summer uh, and fall leagues, all this other stuff, it was, I mean, I was doing well. But something happened whenever I got on that mound mentally that I just could not connect it. And so I had a roller coaster turn of events whenever I was in college for the three years that I played. And then going into my senior year, um, I was praying and I felt like the Lord told me to step away from baseball and do something else. And at that time, I got a call from uh, a recruiter at where I work at now, and um, it ended up just working out great. And so I ended up moving to Nashville. That's where I'm currently at now. And I've been here for about two and a half, going on three years. Um, and yeah, that's where I'm at today. Wow. I love it. Okay. Talk about some cliff notes. Uh, so, but one thing to clarify around us going back to the same high school, we didn't go to the same high school at the same time. Correct. So, so you and I met and- 
you said you were from Memphis. And I was like, no way, I'm from Memphis. And I said, yeah. what, high, what high school did you go to? And you said Bartlett High School. I said, hold on, time out, time out. There is no way that I've met somebody who went to Bartlett High School in the middle of Nashville yeah. 10 years after I graduated. Right. So, so I do want to harp a lot on that and riff on that theme of, so for folks who don't know who aren't from Memphis, Bartlett's baseball team is one of the premier teams pretty much in the country. Yeah. Uh, from a program standpoint, especially while I was there and while you were there, uh, just a lot of a lot of professional players came out of there. A lot of uh, just high quality individuals. So, talk to us about what lessons you learned from that game and that program that transcended into your twenties and into your working career, and just the discipline you learned from from that sport. Yeah, good question. Good point. Um, so, uh, Joe's right. Whenever we were there. Uh, our head coach of the team, his name is Phil Clark. He's an absolute legend. He honestly is is top two most impactful people in my entire life. And so when I got to high school, he actually, um, he, I did some lessons with him when I was leaving middle school. Uh, and that's the reason I went to Bartlett. I just, me and all my friends were like, wow, this guy is amazing. They win a lot. And I just feel like, you know, he could take us to the next level. And to give some background knowledge on Coach Clark, I mean, he coached uh, the USA team back in, I believe, 1994. There's some pro guys like Joe Maurer and Frank Thomas were on these teams, uh, some heavy hitters. And uh, he's won a couple national championships. Uh, I know one specifically uh, back in the 90s. But just being under him, I mean, <clears throat> like I mentioned earlier, I didn't grow up <clears throat> with a dad. And so he took that role for me in high school. Um, I had some of my other best friends, dads that have been there the whole time, but he kind of just took me under his wing while I was there, took a lot of care of me and just poured a lot into me. And I mean, he was, you know, he's the guy that's like, Hey, if you're not 15 or 30 minutes early, you're late. I remember specifically, there was one time that one of our pitchers showed up one minute late and he was supposed to pitch in front of some scouts and coach Clark didn't let him pitch. And that was actually my first varsity start ever. Um, and so that's just the type of guy that he was. Um, he just did not play around and he just instilled consistent hard work and dedication and passion. And another good thing that he gave me was he always preached to us that baseball wasn't the end all be all. And I didn't really, you know, when you're going through high school and going in college, you don't really see that until you stop playing baseball. Um, you don't really know that there's a world outside of baseball. Um, you know, when you, until you stop playing. And so, Luckily with him, he always checked grades every single nine weeks. We had an, or every single four weeks, we'd have an interim come out. And every nine weeks, I think we'd have the report card. I think I'm right on that timeline. But I mean, if you had a below a certain GPA, you were running a lot. And if you got in trouble in school, even barely, you were running, you were running. And so he just instilled so many great lessons in us that carried over. And so, you know, now today I know the effects of waking up really early, eating really clean treating my body right, filling my mind with the right things. And honestly, it's literally all due to him. So I give him so much credit for the success that I have now in my life uh, in my professional career based on what he taught me back in high school. So I remember very vividly you and Willie Shaw yeah. had a glove apiece and you were just throwing a baseball to each other in the middle of a fire alarm <laughs> on the side of the road in the middle of downtown Nashville, Tennessee. Right. And I remember looking at that and just being blown away since both of you played college baseball 
at how effortless it looked like when you guys were were throwing that ball to each other. Yeah. And how you didn't even have to think about catching that ball. Like there there was zero doubt in my mind looking at you guys that that ball was going to go and hit a car on the road next to you. Um maybe that's overconfident, maybe that maybe I just believe in you guys that much, but it was just impressive to me. And you guys didn't even play professional ball. I mean, you you stopped at the college level. You know, it's a whole nother level at the professional level, but how how would you say that confidence that you have with that ball uh, applies just in regular day-to-day life? Yeah, that's a great question. So baseball is a game of failure. Um, if you talk to any baseball player, when they define it, one of the things they say is it's designed to make you fail. Uh, you can go to the Hall of Fame if you have a career where you bat 300. So that out of 10 times, out of 10 at-bats, if you get three hits, you are a legend. And, you know, if you do that anywhere else, you're like, oh, my gosh, it's a 30 percent. You know, you get a 30 percent on a test. You're flunking out of college. Um, So it's a really weird dynamic. But uh, you just when it comes to baseball and any other sport in general, repetition and practice and just a consistent hunger to get better is what leads to that confidence. And so that's another thing that Coach Clark helped us instill was, I mean, we practiced all the time. I mean, we would leave school at, you know, two two fifteen. We'd have practice starting at two forty five, which gave us enough time to get a snack and we'd be practicing from two forty five to anywhere from five to six o'clock, you know, four to five days a week. And so we developed so many consistent habits. We were throwing, we were talking about location as a pitcher all the time. Hitters were getting at bats and in the cage all the time. And then college, same thing at Austin P. We were practicing, you know, five, six days a week. Um all the time. And so that led to just confidence and also uh, rolled over to my professional life too. Um, doing the same thing over and over again. I know that that can also lead to insanity, but it also leads to just that confidence in that same thing. If you do something, the same thing all the time, you're going to know how to do that in a perfect manner at some point. And so when you're talking about me and Willie being out there throwing that ball, you know, I don't have to think twice about throwing a baseball. Um, I just grab the ball and I just know that because I've done it for 20 years, uh, I'm going to hit Willie in the chest almost every single time. And I would say that that just leads to, you know, repetition and whatever you do and consistent practice um, to get better and get more reps in is what leads to that confidence. So let's take it a step back to your dad passing away when you were nine. Um, There's a lot of different routes you could have gone in life with such an event happening at such a young age. I know you mentioned some of your friends' dads. I know you mentioned Coach Clark. What helped you go down the route that you you went down instead of a another potential route where you lose that guidance, you lose that father figure, you lose that father, quite frankly, uh, and you lose that purpose and mission in life? What what helped you stay stay on the path that you stayed on? Yeah, I think there were a couple of things. One specifically was my mom. Um, like for us there was no other option but to keep going. A little background on my family. So my mom and dad are both Dominican. Um, obviously, most people recognize the Dominican Republic as a good place to go to for your honeymoon, you know, et cetera. But that's it. You know, outside of that is a really, uh, that country's in poverty. Um, so my mom grew up without running water, you know, no electricity, you know, 20 plus hours a day. Uh, so did my dad too. And so, you know, living in the same house, my mom views this house as a luxury. And whenever my dad passed away, uh, it was everything that she could do to make sure that we continue to get by and she put food on the table. 
And so I never even had that thought of, hey, I'm going to go do this or I'm going to get involved in, in this with this group, et cetera. She just kept me on the right path all the time. Hey, continue to be hungry in school, get straight A's because if you don't get straight A's, I'm whooping you. You know, um, you got to continue, continue to get better at baseball. That could potentially be your way out because that's the way out for a lot of Dominicans. Um, and so all these things that she instilled in me just continued to develop and progress. And being around the friend groups that I was around, I was really blessed and privileged to be around a lot of guys that had the same focuses and intentions on getting really, really good at baseball um, to hopefully go to the next level uh, after high school. Um, as well as just the other friend groups that I had with people I went to school with, I wasn't surrounding myself with people that would lead me down a bad path. Um, so to answer your question, you know, my mom, coach Clark and all these other parents that I was blessed with, I was, I was putting myself in good circles and in good communities so that I never had to think twice about a decision that I was making. You know, it's okay. I'm either going to go hang out with this friend group and do this, or I'm going to stay at home. It was never, I'm going to go do something that could potentially lead to my demise. And, um, and I'm really grateful for that because I do have a lot of friends that have had parents pass away and they go down a really dark path when it comes to drugs and alcohol abuse um, and, and just some other violence. And so um, I completely credit the Lord for putting the specific people he put in my life um, to be able to not go down that bad path. So, would you say you just had an, a heightened sense of responsibility as soon as your dad passed away? Yeah. And, and it's funny, I was thinking about this right before we hopped on here. <clears throat> it's called millennial manhood, you know, and that's something that I had to develop right whenever my dad passed. I mean, you know, when I was nine years old, I was considered the man in the house, literally. You know, I don't have any siblings. <clears throat> I don't have any family that lives close to me. I just had an aunt recently move to Bartlett. Um, so probably about six years ago. So it's just me and my mom, you know, it's always been Thanksgiving by ourselves, Christmas by ourselves. Uh, I'd go to some friends' houses during Christmas or Thanksgiving just to spend some time with them too and their families, and they took me in. So uh, it was, yeah, there was a super heightened sense of awareness. And that's another thing is a lot of people say that I'm, I'm pretty mature for my age uh, when it comes to the way I carry myself and handle it. It's because I had to, you know, I had to turn into a, an 18-year-old essentially when I was nine. I had to make the right decisions. I had to make sure I was on top of this and on top of this because my mom wasn't holding my hand every two seconds. Uh, she, like I mentioned earlier, she was gone most of the time due to school and work. And so it was me having to get back here and cook the food that she made for me and lock up the doors and clean the house and do all these other things and mow the lawn. Um, and so, yes, I, I, th I do think that having to do all those things so early on developed me into a man quicker than most people have to uh, turn into a man and, and start taking more responsibility. Well, and so much of becoming a man is trial and error. Right. And, and just figuring it out and, you know, screwing up along the way. It's just a matter of how do you put yourself in a position to give yourself the largest statistical probability of success in life in general. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about something regarding your family heritage. So your, your family's Dominican. How old were you, were you the first time you went to the Dominican? I was six years old. Uh, first time I went. Okay. Was that the only time you went? Yeah, because like I mentioned, my dad passed away when I was nine. And so things got really hard financially. And for us to get plane tickets to go down there and spend a week there, it just did not make sense um, to be going on some credit cards. So I haven't been back since I was six years old. So when you were six and you went to Dominican for the first time, 
what did you learn about life as a six-year-old? Yeah, it's funny. I, I was talking to this about, I was talking about this other day to somebody. I remember a lot of, a lot of things distinctly. When we went down there, I remember taking baths with my cousins um, and we were in the tub and uh, there was no hot water that would come from the faucet. And so they would get pots and fill them up from the kitchen sink because that was the warmest water they had and we had no power. Um, and so they'd fill those up and we'd put soap on ourselves and shampoo or whatever we had. And they'd come and douse us in water until, you know, we took our bath, uh, quote unquote. Um, that stuck out to me a lot. There was really no power. When I hung out with my family, uh, we would play baseball on the street. Uh, you know, people, I don't think people really grasp that what that's like. You know, you just imagine here in America. Yeah, you know, like back in, uh, you know, 1930s, these kids in New York, they played baseball in the middle of the street. Well, nobody does that. Nobody does that anymore. You go to a field, you know, whether it's a soccer field or a baseball field or whatever, that's where you play baseball at. They legitimately, we were playing in the middle of an apartment apartment complex on the parking lot and the reason we stopped the game is because my cousin hit what we call home run but we called a home run just because he hit his second story and blew out a window and we all ran inside and we lost the ball and we were using a 10 year old bat and that's what it was so i mean the water is beautiful it's a great place to vacation and everything but i don't think a lot of people realize how poor those people are Uh, my mom grew up and she was eating you know a slice of bread and a couple eggs every single day and she would take the bus an hour or so into town at, in the morning and come back really late at night, uh, help my mom and her brother out. And I mean, she barely slept, barely ate, and she just did what she could to get by. And um, it was just a, it's just a different dynamic, man. It's so crazy. We're so privileged to just be living here in America. And uh, I see a lot of people take that for granted. But when I went down there, I just realized that, you know, when I was six, I was like, my gosh, like, we were so lucky um, to get what we get. And the dollar means so much more here than it does in pesos there. And it was just crazy, man. It was really, it was a really humbling experience for me to actually witness what my mom had been talking about the years leading up until we went. So you talked about being privileged and just lucky to live here, which I agree with you because, you know, I've seen it, I've seen it myself and I I still think this is the best place on earth to have opportunity. um, Even though we've got more than enough problems here, but, you experience that as a six-year-old, then you experience your father's death as a nine-year-old. And, you know, you're just all on your own there. When you envisioned your life 20 years in the future, I mean, what did you envision? Did you ever want to go back there and help folks? Did you want to show your kids someday where your family comes from? Did you, you know, obviously you probably thought you were going to be a professional ball player. Um, What does that vision look like today as a man, as a developed human being? Yeah, good question. Uh, so yes, I did have those thoughts. I mean, growing up, I the really the primary contact I had with most of my family was just phone calls. I had, if my family wasn't a Dominican, they were either Miami, Orlando area, uh, and down in Florida, or they were in New York. And so I've went to New York uh, once specifically to v- visit family. The rest has been for baseball. I went to Miami once when my dad was living to visit uh, some of my family down there too. But growing up, I was always the kid that every time I, you know, my family asked me, hey, what are you going to do? And it's like, I'm going to be the president. You know, I'm going to be a doctor. I'm going to be this. And I wanted to be yeah. all these things. And, uh, you know, I had straight A's. I had like one B going into college or whatever it was. Um, I just knew that I wanted to, you know, create a different dynamic for my family tree um, than what has previously been going on. And so 
when I was, when I've been thinking about what I want in the future, I mean, I haven't seen my grandma. She's probably the closest one. And I saw her, she would live with us for a couple of years at a time and then go back and come back, et cetera. I haven't seen her in years, man. It's been freshman year of college was the last time I saw her. Um, so for me, that's uh, about six years now. Um, and, or yeah, almost seven years. And, uh, outside of that, the only other family member I've seen is my aunt. And so I do want to go back and give back to the family that I can find down there, which would probably be really tough. I know some have added me on Facebook here and there recently, um, just through friends of friends and mutual friends and, you know, social media works, but, um, I do want to take my family down there just to show them what it's like to not live in America and live somewhere where you have to fight and scrap and grind for every single meal. Um, and if you go down the wrong path, I mean, it's just, there's a high crime down there and, and you can get sucked up in it real quick. Um, because there's a lot of people down there that'll promise you food, promise you, you know, getting out of the country, et cetera. And most of those people just don't. Um, so yeah, I do envision myself taking my family down there, giving back to that community, um, and helping change other family trees down there too. So why do you think it is that you had that vision for yourself, but other people, I think we can both agree. Most people that I talk to, or you talk to, they don't have a vision for themselves. They don't have a larger vision than I go to my job. I kind of hate my job. I live for the weekend. I dread coming back on Monday and I don't really care about what's come before me or after me. I think about that, Joe. I think about that all the time. I talk to a lot of people consistently and, and, and you can, you can resonate with, the, with this too. I, I've just found that people that were born and raised or, or from a foreign country that's not America, I, I feel like they just value family so much more and they value things so much more. And not that uh, we should focus on just gathering a bunch of things here on earth, but um, just they care so much more about other people and they're selfless and they want to make sure that everybody's taken care of. And I, I, the more and more I talk to people who are from different countries, the more and more I find that they are, they care much more than most Americans do, to, to be honest. And um, I'm not sure why that is. I feel like uh, they're, you know, in our country, I feel like there's a lot of handholding. Um, there's not a lot of people that have to go through um, some life changing experience, which is fine. You don't have to do that to, to become you know, a person who is selfless and cares about others and gives to others and, and goes down a, you know, a great path. But um, I feel like we take advantage of the opportunities that are given to, to us every single day. And, you know, people take for granted that there's three meals on the table, potentially four to five, you know. Um, I think about that all the time too. Like when it comes to meal prepping, I meal prep. Nobody meal preps down in, in third world countries. They're hoping that they can just find a meal for that day that maybe could take away half their hunger. And really here in America, we don't have to fight for that. And so by not having to fight and scrap for a lot of things that you need in life, I think that we can uh, get really prideful and just expect it that everything's going to be handed to us and that we're always going to be okay, uh, regardless of the situation. And, and so we never have to, uh, people here in America never really have to develop a fight or flight truly um, in, in their own. Can I add something in real quick? Yeah. So I think it's also important to note that I agree with what you're saying, but there are people in this country who suffer. It's just that if you're listening to this podcast, you're probably not one of those people. 
Right. Yes. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Just to clarify, <laughs> that doesn't mean that there's not poverty in this country. That doesn't mean that there's there's not suffering. Just you're running a middle millennial with an iPhone. Your life relative to somebody in Cambodia is probably awesome. Right. For them to have seen a phone is, you know, a, a miracle. Um, yeah, I, I completely agree with you. There's a lot of suffering in this country, but you're exactly right. I, I can echo that. Yeah. It, it's just that averages across the board, you know, people live really, really nice lives. And it's more of those things where, you know, philosophically, you start thinking through it and you're like, man, what is it about us as a generation? And I would actually say millennials overall are probably more compassionate than generations before them um, in a lot of ways. Uh, we don't really want to be part of the machine as much as generations before us. I see a lot of entrepreneurial spirit. However, with that entrepreneurial spirit, I also see a lot of fear because people feel like they don't have the capital or the capacity or the opportunity as they did in the past to take advantage of that entrepreneurial spirit. So they've got the idea, but they're not executing. And to me, that's part of that lack of vision because unless you execute and take a risk, there's no there's no potential reward on the back end. Yeah, I agree with that too because I think a lot of people don't have that blind faith. And it is blind, but to a degree, you know, we can write vision statements for where we want ourselves to be and we can execute on those and so they're not blind completely because you know where you want to end up but taking that first step especially an entrepreneurial standpoint is very scary and a lot of people you know just like you said are are very timid and they don't because they're fearful of what's to come and so they succumb to you know a a life that they don't want to live so how do you get to that blind faith uh personally for me i uh i believe in jesus and being faithful in that standpoint has allowed me to just take huge leaps of faith for me to quit baseball. Um, when I thought that I don't want to be seen as a quitter, you know, for my life, um, that was a huge leap of faith. Cause I, yes, I had this other plan that, you know, I was going to these interviews for, um, to attain an internship, which potentially, I mean, which led to my career, but I had no idea what was going to happen. I didn't know if I was going back to Memphis. I didn't know if I was going here. And so there's been a lot of points in my life where I've kind of just stepped out. And the more and more that you step out, once you take that first step in one thing that you have blind faith in, it becomes more of a, a second nature for you to do that. So the very first time, and I, you know, I can't recall the very first time I did it when I was younger, but I know I took a leap of faith somewhere and I was like, oh, okay, that wasn't that bad. You know, like, I, yeah, I got hurt a little bit, but. Uh, you know, I ended up doing this. Okay. So let me take another step. Let me take another step. And now it's just sprinting. It's, it's, you know, I just believe that the Lord has a calling on my life and he has a road that he's taking me down. Um, and yes, there's going to be a tons of ups, tons of downs. It's going to be a roller coaster, but I know what's going to be on the other side. And so I'm not scared to take a leap of faith. Yeah. And I think that can apply also, even though I agree with you, I am a religious man and, and, I'm on board with what you just said, just to contextualize it for folks who are listening who may not be, you know, it's, it's that leap of faith. You have to be okay with the potential consequences of your actions. If you want the potential benefits and people focus so heavily on the potential consequences that they obsess over it to where they get timid and they don't take that leap of faith. And quite frankly, most individuals, the life that they want to live it's just a little bit of uh, discomfort away. So, so most folks are like, oh, I want to start this business or, hey, I want to get my real estate license or, hey, fun fact, most of those things, you don't even have to quit your day job to do. 
You can do it as a side hustle, build it up and then quit. Get your feet wet. It's the fact that most people aren't even willing to take that first step that hinders them. And then they wonder why they hate their job and why they hate where they're going. So have that blind faith in the plan, in the process, in yourself, in your God, whatever it may be. But having that blind faith is required if you want that next step in your life. Yeah. And, uh, you know, maybe we can wrap on that topic here is but I I just there's so many people that I talk to that, hey, how do you like your job? This is, you know, this how the conversation goes. Hey, how do you like your job? Well, if something else comes along, I'll definitely take it. You know, oh my gosh, can't believe I'm going to be there tomorrow. Like I can't wait for Friday or Saturday, you know, and that just scares the crap out of me. I would never want to be that person. And I feel like if you are that person, you need to go find something that you love and you need to do it. Um, I, like you, like you're saying right now, there's so many people that are scared to do what they love because they don't want to leave uh, their job that seems like a secure position and they'll do a side hustle until maybe that builds up. And if it doesn't, then they knew it never would have worked, you know? And so I feel like, uh, I just want to say this to the people that are listening that are want to make a, a step in that direction to something they love and, and go away from something that they hate, do it, um, do it now because you're not going to regret it. And even if you fall flat on your face, you're not going to regret taking that decision because you're going to learn much more about yourself than if you would have just stayed in what you were doing previously. You know what my dad told me when I was thinking about going into business for myself? He said, go do it. Do it for a year. Your expenses are almost non-existent. Mm -hmm. If you fail, so what? You're 23 in a year. What's the worst that can happen? Yeah. And I remember just thinking about that and thinking, oh, yeah, if I fail, I'll just do something else. It's not that crucial. Yeah. And it was just so eye-opening for him to say, dude, you're, you're overthinking this. This is not rocket science. Go try it. You'll either suck or you won't. Pick one or the other. <laughs> so a lot of times the, the fear of failure is, is worse than the actual failure itself. That's right. Good advice from Mr. Georgievich. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Milanisms. Just throwing them at you, folks. <laughs> so, you know, I mean – so how old are you right now? I am 24. I'll be 25 at the end of this year. So 24, 25, outside of the obviously like um, struggling with um, taking a leap of faith or whatever it may be, particularly men your age, young men, what are some of the just day-to-day struggles you're seeing? Yeah, good question. Um, I feel like uh, I feel like as men – we're, we're somewhat reclusive when it comes to the role of leadership that we're supposed to play. Um, I see that more and more, uh, in my friends and some friend groups that I have, or some other people that I met, that I meet. Um, I feel like that is one area for sure that we need to develop. I, I believe that older men should be mentoring and developing people my age. And then when we can return the favor to people who are going to be our age, when we're older, uh, we need to do a better job of teaching what it means to be a leader in the household, leader at your job, a leader in general, um, to be able to guide your family where they need to. I feel like there's a lot of men in America that are really reclusive um, and they aren't taking a step forward to make sure that their household is being ran the way it's supposed to or they're not taking advantage of some leadership roles at their work. Um, there's, I just feel like there's a lot of timidness and I'm not sure what it stems from. Um, also too, I think that, uh, had some people talk about this, 
uh, in your previous podcasts, uh, I think Willie specifically, um, when it comes to uh, the sin of pornography, I think that that is another thing that a lot of men uh, struggle with, especially with having the internet at the tip of your fingers every two seconds, and you can find anything that you want to on there. I would say that those are the two things that uh, people are struggling with the most uh, in men in uh, my generation, um, for sure. Well, and that's like the number one thing I hear women complain about when it comes to dateable men. And I want to make something very clear, and I know this is how you meant it when you say leadership. When we say leadership, we don't mean tyranny, okay? We're not talking about uh, get out of my way, I'll smack you around and you know, get my way at all costs. That's not what leadership is. That's, that's tyrannical. Okay. Leadership is taking responsibility for your actions. Leadership is being somebody of high character whose word is valuable. Okay. Leadership is being somebody who is an oak tree during a catastrophe. Okay. Somebody who, who can be grounded and help others through uh, difficult situations. Leadership is caring for others when they need to be cared for. And leadership is also deferring uh, responsibility when that is not your expertise and somebody else is more well-versed to take care of what needs to be taken care of. Okay. So don't get, don't get confused on what the word leadership means, because a lot of you are falling into the trap of the media of believing that leadership is tyranny. No, tyranny is tyranny. Okay. Let's get that very, very clear. Um, no, but you're right. Like the, I've mentioned this on the 50th episode, uh, the number one demographic of people who reaches out to me about millennial manhood are millennial women thanking us for what we're doing and thanking us for the conversation and talking about how it's really hard to, to find men who are willing to step into their specific leadership roles of being men of character, being men of responsibility, being men of, uh, of value. Uh, of love, of compassion, of all those things. And yeah, you're right. It's, it's slightly terrifying actually. Yeah. It's, uh, it's very terrifying. And I do think that just, and that's one thing I don't watch. I keep up with the news, but I don't watch the news a lot, but whenever I get on there, I just feel like there's, uh, you know, just these things that can warp your mind that to thinking all these negative things and connotations about men, women, et cetera. Um, and, I, I, I definitely I love that women are reaching out to you and, and thanking you for that, because that is an issue that we need to address. Um, and a lot of people need to be led. You know, if there's you know, if the reason this country is the way it is, is because there were people who led it to where it's supposed to be and where it is now. And so I feel like we need we do need to do a better job of developing leaders in this country in all sense of that word. Um, like you said, not tyranny. Um, but legitimate leaders that people can respect and, uh, you know, value what they value and philosophically align so that everybody can move towards a greater purpose and a betterment of their livelihoods. And I would even challenge something you said earlier. You mentioned that older men should be mentoring younger men in their 20s and 30s. And then once we're old enough to give back. I say, take that a step further. Older men should be mentoring younger men, but younger men should also be mentoring guys in their teens. We should already be doing that. We should already be taking interest in young minds and saying, Hey, here's where I screwed up. Let me help you not reinvent the reinvent the wheel. Let me help guide you through this life. That's going to leave you scarred, but let's, let's make those scars strategic. Yeah. And I'm glad you said that too, because there was a, uh, one of my youth pastors when I was in middle school, he took me under his wing 
um, it was another father figure in my life. His name's Tommy Faulkner. And, uh, he did that. He, um, he had a son that was around my age too, but when I was in middle school, he took me and, and taught me a lot of things that were valuable lessons in my life. So I definitely agree with that. Um, we should be doing a better job of, you know, even me included, I'll speak for myself, preaching to the choir. I need to be, you know, impacting the community for kids in uh, elementary, middle and high school to make sure that they're coming out and making the right decisions. So we're coming up on time, but I'm loving the conversation, but you probably know what's, what's about to hit, hit you. What question is about to hit you? So you go back to 18-year-old Shane, all right, wide-eyed, bushy-tailed. Look, fresh out, fresh out of Bartlett, fresh out of feeling like he's on top of the world because he's part of one of the best baseball programs in the country, going to Austin P. You're a college athlete. You're, you've, got, uh, you've got name recognition, probably a little bit of an ego, et cetera. What's one piece of advice you give yourself at 18, knowing all that you know about yourself and knowing all that you know? I would say... Honestly, respect yourself more than respect yourself more. That's what I would say. I'd say there's a lot of decisions that I made um, past 18 that I wish I would have done things a little bit differently. Um, I wish I would have taken more steps in some different directions quicker. Uh, and And it would have developed me into the man that I am today at a faster pace. And so I feel like there were some decisions that I made just to fit in, try to be cool in college, you know, go to these parties, whatever else it was, that was just a complete waste of time. And I wasn't getting plugged in and giving back and, and doing things I needed to until later in college, um, you know, end of junior, end of junior year, senior year. And so I would say to, to have more, um, respect for myself and the fact of uh, making sure I'm being selfless, caring about others, not like you said, putting my uh, putting my pride and ego to the side. I definitely had one, thinking I was a big bad man on top of the world because I was going to D one school uh, meant nothing. And so I wish I had more uh, respect for myself in the sense that I'd make more right decisions that would lead me to a betterment of my livelihood um, sooner and develop me more into the man that I am today and, and that I'm going to become. Boom. Respect yourself, man. Yeah. Put some respect on that name. That's right. You hear me. <laughs> well, Shane, that was awesome. Thanks. Thanks for coming on. Glad you could share your story. I think we'll achieve our mission of impacting somebody with what you had to say, but I'll make sure to put all your social media accounts and such in the description. If anybody wants to slide in your DMS or holler at you, and don't, hey, but, don't, and, don't hate on my name. I've had the same name, Swagger Shane, since I was 14. Okay, that was only 10 years ago, so do not hate on that name. <laughs> That's so funny. It's funny because like having an Instagram at 14 is like mind-boggling to me. I didn't have an Instagram until I was like 21 or 22. Well, I had, I had Twitter. So, Twitter first came out when I think I was about 14, and then Instagram right after. But, I mean, I, you know, I thought that name was so cool, rolled off the tongue. So, yeah, don't hate. <laughs> okay. <laughs> So for obviously for anybody listening, you want to get a hold of us, millennialmanhoodcip at gmail.com. Check out millennialmanhood.net. All right. Got the new website, .net. I mentioned this in the last episode, but .com was already taken and they wanted to charge me like two grand. And I said, .net it is. Yeah, no shot. No shot in hell. Um, we're bringing the .net back. Anyway, got constructive criticism. Give us a shout. 
keyword constructive. Don't just complain, offer a solution, et cetera, et cetera. You've heard the deal. Shane, thanks for coming on, man. I really appreciate it. And we'll, uh, we'll talk soon. 